Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we're going to be discussing three topics. Firstly, we'll discuss the gubernatorial elections taking place in three states in Nigeria, Kogi State, Imo State and Bayelsa State. Secondly, we'll discuss President Bola Ahmed Tinubu's meeting with the Saudi Arabian king. And thirdly, we'll discuss the press conference held by the presidential candidate of the Labour Party in the 2023 elections, Peter Obi. So firstly, Phoenix, the elections in Kogi Imo and Bayelsa, um, are they going well according to expectations, Phoenix? Hi, Michael. Um, hope you're having a pleasant weekend. Uh, I, I know the weather has not been uh, funny in parts of Europe. Um, hi, listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Um, well, it depends on whose expectations, right? If you're talking about, I mean, folks who generally want good governance in Nigeria, uh, and who say have faith in the process? No, it's not. It's not going to what they would like to see. Um, but for for those who win by all means necessary, who's who follow the mantra of the new leader who says snatch it, grab it, do whatever you can. It seems to be going according to expectations. One thing that I must say is I expected. Um, no different. I, I mean, I have lost and I have entirely lost faith in the capability or capacity of INEC to run proper elections in Nigeria, and therefore I am not surprised when we start hearing that even before um, the time for elections had had um, even before the time for elections in Kogi State, for example, people were already seeing completed uh, ballot papers and uh, uh, result sheets. So uh, even though the INEC was jumping out and trying to say they were investigating, I mean, if you've created an environment where people believe that they can do whatever it takes to win, and not only will they be supported by INEC, they will be reinforced by the Supreme Court. I mean, so this should not be of any surprise to anyone. And so we see the kind of results that have come out of Imo State. We see the kind of violence that we are seeing, not only in Imo State, in Bayelsa, uh, where population centers are under siege. We see Kogi again. So for me, INEC in his current guys cannot give, cannot cannot be positive to our democracy. So um, I'm not surprised. Thank you, Phoenix. But let's focus firstly on Emo State, because members of the Labour Union, the Nigerian Labour's Labor Congress, held, held a protest a few days ago, blocking the international airport in Abuja, accusing the Emo State governor of masterminding the beating up of the chairman of the Labour Congress. Is is there truth to these allegations, Phoenix? And uh, what, 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 what is happening? Why would a governor order the beating up of a, a Labour leader, Phoenix? Well, we saw, we saw that the guy was beaten. <laughs> That's not in question. Um, I don't think there's any um, absolute evidence that it was the governor that masterminded it, although people say it was APC um, supporters or APC goons that did it. And being that the governor is from the APC, ergo, he is the one who is being alleged to have led it. And and so, I mean, that's why the NLC and its folks are, are were up in arms. Now, people may not be following as closely may ask but why what is special about the um, labor leader 
that he had to get beaten in Nemo State. The, the NLC practically owns the Labour Party. They they set it up. They are they are they are an overwhelming influence in that party, and therefore, a lot of their stance during elections have a political bent, given that they have an interest, a vested interest in in the Labour Party, and the Labour Party was fielding a candidate uh, for the Imo State election, which to all intents and purposes was supposed to be a credible candidate that was going to give the governor a run for his money. By what by the results that INEC have de has declared, <laughs> that turned out to be a, a pipe dream. So, I mean, yes, um, the, the suspicion is on the governor, but as far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen any definitive proof that that, that was the case. And one thing as well, Phoenix, is it was on, on live television, the collation agent for the Labour Party That's right. was beaten up in Emo State. Is, is this, has this happened before or is this a first? We're on live TV during collation the agent for the Labour or for a political party is beaten in the hall where the collation is taking place? Well, we haven't seen that on live TV, but there's so many things in the that we haven't seen that have happened in the 2023 election cycle. So and that lends credence, doesn't it, to to the beating of the of the president of the Nigerian Labour Congress. Again, explaining the connection between NLC and the Labour Party. We, we all saw what happened to the Labour Party agent um, who was complaining about, you know, irregularities. And uh, he was beaten and bundled out of the collation centre. And what's interesting is that collation centre is supposed to be um, heavily guarded. On the on the panel sitting next to the collision officer is typically the commissioner of police for the state. There's supposed to be lots of policemen and other security officers around, but this happened, and so you you begin to add one one plus one together, and you're seeing um, the state of, uh, of of the nation at this time, especially as regards elections. And then the other question on Emo again is a number of commentators have made the point that this is the first time in since 1999 that a candidate in Emo State's elections would win all local government areas of the state. That usually the race tends to be competitive, but this is the first time Hope Uzodima literally swept all 27 local governments. So in, in your view, is this would you say this result was expected or would you support the view of it appears the majority of commentators that there were a lot of electoral irregularities where do, where do you stand Felix well i think we can i think two things can be true i think we can say that there there are a lot of uh, irregularities there is the INEC inability to run elections there's a collusion by security forces but also, people. I mean, if you're if you're uh, a pure political uh, analyst who's just looking at the facts on ground, you may point to the fact that during the um, national assembly elections, or or was it state assembly? I can't remember which one it was. Um, APC um, swept twenty six out of twenty seven seats. That's the sorry, the, the state assembly election. So. You may say that that was a foretelling of, you know, the state of the APC in Imo State. So people would look at that and say, oh, what did you expect? I mean, they already won 26 out of 27 seats. Did you expect that the governor would not have that sort of dominance? But you can you can say that and also point to irregularities during those elections and then say that this particular election is clear that... Um, that uh, that all the governor was pulling out all stops to make sure that he coasted to victory. So, um, and the kind of numbers that were declared and the kind of margin that was declared, because going into the election, it was seen as a as a close election. It wasn't a given. This is not a governor who had done well in his first term. 
this is a governor who was who was basically making promises you know to do things not reading out his scorecard because he had he did not have one to present so it wasn't as if um who does uzodima was uh, was a popular governor and and he was a shoe in this was supposed to be a tight race but to to see the events during the election and to see the results you know just um it, it just it just leaves me shaking my head for the state of it of uh, the electoral process in the country. Then in Bielsa, Phoenix, there are also reports of, of violence with officials being kidnapped. What, 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 is, what is happening? I'm, I'm trying to pin down the issues because by, let's say, 2010, 2009, 2010, and going forward, Elections seem to become more peaceful. And by just up to 2023, with the introduction of the IREV and the BVAS, a lot of that violence seemed to have been taken out of the process. So what what has happened, Phoenix? What what is behind this sudden upsurge in violence in Imo, in Kogi, in, in Bielsa? Michael, it can only be that people have been emboldened, haven't they? You see a president. You see a, a president of the country who basically came to office, you know, on the back of stolen elections. Somebody who clearly told his his supporters to to go out and snatch ballot boxes and and win by any means necessary. We see a an INEC that had supposedly put in place um, uh, technology and processes and systems to checkmate all of this, you know, um, electoral um, malpractices by ensuring that from polling center straight to collation, there will be an electronic transmission. And then the same INEC, you know, rubbished everything, changed their process, and basically just made it a free-for-all. I mean, whoever is most powerful or has the most resources can, can and ready to wield as much violence can take elections. That's basically what INEC said with their 2023 general elections performance. And this was this was affirmed by the Supreme Court. So we the, I mean people have gone to the, particularly the presidential elections. We went to the presidential election petition tribunal they affirmed the results, went to the Supreme Court, neglected all the evidence, neglected all the practices, did not even, you know, speak to INEX. You know, people call it incompetence. I call it malevolence. I mean, I call it, you know, because it's it's not just that they, they poorly did their job. They poorly did their job to a detrimental intent to the nation, to, to, to our democracy, to our electoral process. So when people see that, it, I mean, you can only expect that bad actors will feel emboldened and they will go out. And so, so everything that we're seeing in, in these three states, I mean, no one should be surprised. No one should be surprised. So for me, I mean, I, I must say that I did not put much stock in, in, in the elections. I did not pay attention to them because as far as I'm concerned, they they they're fruits from a poisonous tree. You've you've already destroyed the credibility of INEC and its electoral processes. So anything that comes from it can only be a disaster. And this and this just confirmed that. And then, what about, what what role are, are the courts going to play? Do the candidates or the 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 parties that feel cheated do they have hope that the judiciary is going to right the wrongs? Because in a case, for example, like Emo State, where in the presence of the electoral officials, the Labour Party's agent is beaten up, the PDP part, PDP's agent is forced to leave, then in Kogi State, there are credible, credible reports that result sheets have been filled out even before the elections took place. And INEC themselves admitted on social media that they had received credible reports that somehow their result sheets were already completed before the elections took place. Do you think there's going to be judicial uh, remedies available for these? I I don't think there will be judicial remedies. Um, 
as long as I mean, if we're if we're looking to what has gone before, but I'm always one who believes that you have to. I mean, if you disagree and you have evidence of um of I mean that you can clearly show that some things were done wrong, that you must go through the process, the legal process, even if only to to make a statement and put on record that this happened, this happened, this happened. And, you know, in the current situation that we are in this country, I, I don't see that any court is going to, you know, offer any reprieve. But, I mean, if people are have enough and they want to, I would support that because I believe that that only strengthens um the case and we must i think what what's also important for me is that we, we need to play a long game people cannot give up and i think that's one thing that the the court cases also help because when you give up based on what INEC has has communicated you don't have you don't give the opportunity to engage the populace which is what we gained through the six month or so process with the presidential election petition. While a lot of people, you know, understood that there may be no reprieve from the courts, but the information that came out, the petitions that were made, the, the arguments that were made, have fed the populace, have made sure that, these, that people understood, you know, the situation. And then what you expect is that people act on that, you know, going forward. We have, we have to plan and strategize over the next four years for to really drive home the change that we need in this country. And then the final question is, what are the long-term implications of this new approach to conducting elections in Nigeria? What do you, what do you think, what, what, what in your view is the, will the impact be on the political process? It worries me because typically things like this create apathy because people lose faith, they lose trust in the process and they stay away. Um, that's one thing. So I, I wait to see, you know, but but given what we saw in 2023 and given this new generation who will gain further experience from this um, electoral process and who have shown that they're not, they're not, afraid of of being confrontational and of being making their voices heard perhaps they stay in but they need to be engaged they need to grow they need to expand um so that that's that one path worries the the the, the fear of apathy worries me but then again i'm looking to the to the younger generation and seeing if they will pick up the baton i think the the, the bigger worry is this winner takes all this violence this you know turning a blind eye by 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 the law, by judiciary, is only going to feed the monster. And you're going to have more and more bad actors who now know that, you know, all they have to do is, you know, strong arm the process and also find a way through the courts to legitimize what they've done. Uh, you, they're going to be emboldened. And so that's that's the... That's the that's the worry for me. That where do we go from here? And 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 for me, it not just stops there because, yes, you will have bad actors who will be emboldened. But what what if um, Nigerians also, I mean, ordinary people, therefore decide that okay, this is a <laughs> this is a battle to the finish, and we get into a situation where there's all-out violence both from the people who want to steal elections in the first place, but from the people who want their votes to be counted and who want to participate in the electoral process. So Nigeria is playing with fire. I mean, we're a country of 200 million people, and it seems like the people who have, are in the leadership positions in this country fail to remember that, that the smallest issues can become something really massive in this country. And if they continue down this path, where there is brazen disregard for people's feelings, for for equity, for justice, for if we are truly a democracy, giving people the right to choose their leaders. At some point, I mean, they should expect that people will react. And it might not be what they 
what they are prepared for. Thank you, Phoenix. But on to our next topic, which is the Saudi-Africa summit and President Bolatinibu's attendance. The first question, which I think a of the listeners are trying to get their heads around, and that includes myself, is what is this Saudi-Africa summit, uh, Phoenix? Well, it's basically Saudi Arabia trying to um, build influence. I mean, it's they've been doing this for a while. Although this is the first time they will actually have a summit, but but they've been they've been for a while building relationships with African countries on an individual one to one basis. But they've started, and especially under MBS, they've started to position themselves not only as a Gulf um, or Arab um, um, geographical power, if you may put it that way, but they want to exert influence on a on a global scale. They want to also affect the course of, you know, global affairs. And we've, we've been seeing them make moves, you know, we've seen um, overtures to uh, Ru- Russia, China, to, name it. So, uh, which is in contrast to previous eras where they were they were very much in cahoots with the US. Now they seem to be rebuffing the US and a lot of it is to do with, you know, the aftermath of the Khashoggi incident and all of that. Now of course we know that Africa is one place where everyone is looking to play. We know China has been looking to exert influence in Africa for a while. We know that the the West led by the US and you know, the UK have played here, the UK having been a previous colonial and maintained relationships through the Commonwealth has also been here. Now we see that Saudi Arabia wants to formally build a an alliance with African countries. And, and so when we see the summit and the people, the kind of people that they invited, you know, they, 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 are, they are clearly setting their stall out to to um to Ghana influence. And we know that the way Saudi Arabia typically looks at it, we can only look at what they typically do with other Arab countries and what they've done particularly with a country like Egypt. They use um, cash diplomacy. They have bags of um, of of uh, of of cash to to go ally investments and through that, you know, buy their way through to being influential and and you know making friends with with other countries, so we wait to see how this all evolves. Um, but yeah, that was that was really what the first summit was about. Now, Phoenix, a number of commentators have said that it is embarrassing on Africa's part to be attending such a summit, and they use the example, for example, that uh, Saudi Arabia's GDP. It's about eight hundred and thirty-three billion. Nigeria's GDP alone, as of twenty twenty-one, was four hundred and forty billion. So, whilst Saudi's GDP is bigger than Nigeria's, Nigeria Saudi should be the ones having a one-to-one summit. But their claim is to invite all these African countries to come together. Is 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 quite condescending, and it's apparently shameful that. A country like Nigeria would even attend. That that shows how low we've we fallen in the international order. Do you think there's merit to their claims, or are these people just being overly sensitive? I think there's merit to the claims. You only have to look at the people who attended the summit. I mean, there was no, as far as unless somebody corrects me, I didn't see South Africa attending that summit. So, I mean, I didn't. I do, don't recall. Um, hearing that uh, Egypt was at that summit. So for me, I'm like, if you're looking at Nigeria within Africa, who are our peers? Our peers were not at the summit. So it tells you that people saying that they are right. Now, of course, Nigeria is is struggling with a number of things at at the moment. Um, Of course, economically, we're not doing well, and it looks like 
we're willing to take cash or investment from anybody who is willing to offer it. I think that on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a president who clearly has a legitimacy crisis and will go anywhere he's called to seem like he's he's playing on the on the world stage. So add those two things together and you can understand why Nigeria was going there. But uh, people are absolutely right. There is no basis for Nigeria to be going to an all-Africa summit hosted by Saudi Arabia. Nigeria and Saudi Arabia should be seen within the same um, same sphere. If, if we're looking at, uh, you know, countries with influence and if we had been on the right trajectory, we have, you know, so I, I mean, I can see a lot of sense in what people are saying. And then, but then the other angle, which I wonder if, if, if it's relevant, is the fact that Saudi Arabia is said to be the custodian of a number of the Islamic holy sites. So do you think from a political perspective, Bolatinibu was trying to manage religious sensitivities by attending, because wouldn't, wouldn't there have been a snob to, let's say, the almost 50% of people in Nigeria who are Muslims if he had declined to attend? Do you think there's 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 merit in looking at things from that angle? I don't think so, although that doesn't stop people from looking for insult where there is none. This was a, a political-slash-economic summit. It had nothing to do with religion. So why, why would anybody... Um, be upset by that. If you get my 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 point, I'm like, they didn't invite people on the basis of, oh, you you are a country with uh, you, with a large Islamic pop, uh, population, therefore you should be there, you know. So, for me, if Nigeria had chosen not to go and instead had made other arrangements with Saudi Arabia to build a bilateral relationship because that, that would make more sense. I don't see why anybody should have been upset by that. But like I said before, you can, I mean, in, in the charged atmosphere we are in, in the, in the situation, especially one that has been enabled by the current president with his Muslim Muslim ticket and the way, I mean, they went about the elections. Yes, people will take people. You you can't stop people from taking offense to anything they want to take offense to. Thank you, Phoenix. And then, in terms of the practical issues, when you look at the Saudi economy, in what areas do you think they can add value to Nigeria? What what, what are the real economic benefits of the of Nigeria, for example, attending this summit? I think I think if Nigeria can convince, I mean, Saudi Saudi Arabia and I mean and Saudi investors to to invest in Nigeria, you know, um, particularly around infrastructure, you know, mostly capital. That's the biggest thing that you can you can get from Saudi Arabia that would help Nigeria, you know, cap capital. I mean, huge uh, investment into the country to help with um, a lot of the challenges that we've had from an FX perspective, a lot of the fact that we have an infrastructure deficit, you know. There's also technological um, um, technological exchange from an oil and gas perspective. We all know how, how big Saudi Arabia is in the oil industry, we would very much like to be able to pattern, although it's now private, supposedly privatized, um, NNPC after Aramco, which is said to be the most valuable company in the world. So the Saudis know one or two things and are doing things right. But uh, yeah, beyond that, uh, not much. Thank you, Phoenix. But let, let's drill down on this oil industry because. According to Bolatinibu's own uh, version of events, he claims that the Saudis have agreed to partner with Nigeria in terms of rehabilitating our refineries. And the, the question is, is that what Nigeria needs at, the at this time? Needs Saudi help to 
rehabilitate those refineries in Kaduna and Wari, I presume? Is that what we need? Well, it depends on what he means by rehabilitate. If it's that we are ready, we are finally ready to sell them off, and the Saudis are invested in, are interested in buying, buying them, or at least taking a significant ownership stake and bringing their own money to to turn them around. Yeah, by all means. One thing that we know that Nigeria has struggled with is the inability to refine oil locally has been. A challenge to us. It's it's one of the biggest issues I've always said around um, the FX dilemma that we have because we we have to import petroleum products and and that that's a that causes a big drain on on our on the naira and the on the dollar reserves and things like that. But I mean, we've been talking about these refineries for like forever <laughs> and. I just don't see any any value in those refineries as far as I'm concerned. But if the Saudis are interested and think, and they, they, they do a lot of that in their country, they have uh, significant refining capacity. If they want to come and invest and take them over, not not give Nigeria money or, or something that Nigeria continues to retain a, a majority ownership in, then yeah, it's one to look out for. But the other promise he made as well is that he assured the investors that they'll be able to get their money out quickly once if they put it in. But then a number of commentators on the economy said that even the airlines, after all the noise they've made, they still have $700 million that they've not been able to repatriate because of the forex shortages. So the, the allegation is that Bolatinimu's promise to the Saudi investors is not one that he's capable of fulfilling if he, if he still hasn't fulfilled prior promises to airlines, particularly the, the United Arab Emirates own carrier, the Emirates Airline. So do you think he, he can't fulfill this promise he's made to the Saudis, Phoenix, in light of the fact that we're still owing other airlines money? Well, I, I mean, in current in current state, and to your point, given what we've seen, I don't see how he manages to do that. I mean, everyone clearly knows that Nigeria, I mean, particularly the CBN, doesn't have the reserves um, to 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 ensure that they can settle um, the backlogs that exist. I understand that some of those backlogs have been have started being cleared. Um, but right now they're not in a good place. But he has to make those promises. He has to state that look, yes, we have a challenge now. But as you come in and our economy begins to move, we, we're not going to be putting in any capital controls. We will allow you to bring in your your uh, investment. You you'll be able to invest and you'll be able to repatriate your funds because the economy will be booming. There will be a lot of you know it's. It's the way the economy should should um, function. Um, the issue will be, and it's the. I mean, he has to make those kind of noises, especially to um, FBI uh, people who bring in foreign portfolio investment to the to, to people like the Saudis who he hopes will bring in um, FDI. You know, which is more longer term. He has to be making those noises. They have to then look and see if they want to be the first movers, right? So the question then becomes who will be the first to take to take this step and say, okay, we'll bet on you and bring in we'll bring in our investment and then see how things pan out. Somebody has to take that first jump. And perhaps that's why he was happy to go east to to, to Saudi Arabia. Because we do know that investments from from the East, from Saudi Arabia, from the Middle East, from China will be less stringent than uh, from the West. The the folks who are looking to invest from places like Saudi Arabia are looking to invest for influence. So they they I mean they're not for them. It's not that they they want to go and throw away money. But the but the requirements 
and the governance structure around their funding is quite different. And so it may be easier to attract than the normal places where we'll go to. And so we'll see how it all pans out. But you make a great point around, you know, you've not been able to, you know, enable that. Why would anybody trust? It's up to the Saudis to do their due diligence and decide whether they want to jump in this ship. And for what reason? You know, what else is being tied to this investment that will make it important for them? Because don't forget, this is also a political play. We've seen that MBS is willing. I mean, you only have to go and look at the investments in Egypt that Saudi Arabia has made over the last, I'd say, uh, five to ten years. Maybe, maybe even less than that, maybe five to seven years, which is not necessarily always about, oh, we're getting money out of it, but about influence. So if if they think that there's something to be gained in being chummy with Nigeria, the largest country in Africa, and that enables them to have a foothold, more influence, perhaps they, they will be willing to jump in and not have as much concern as any rational investor. The final question on this topic, Phoenix, looking at the members of the delegation, one of the interesting names there was the was Gilbert Shagori, the the head of the Shagori group and a close ally of Balatinubu. That seemed to raise a few eyebrows amongst the Nigerian political commentariats that what is Shagori doing with Tinubu in Saudi Arabia? Do you have any concerns or do you think this is a businessman who has a Nigerian passport and therefore should be allowed to attend these events with the president? Is that your view, Phoenix? Of course, I have concerns, but it's to be expected. We knew that he was already in cahoots with Tinubu for a long time. We saw the pictures of them in Paris before, I mean, during the election cycle. And so, I mean, I, I would have been surprised if he if he didn't show up one way or another in a Tinubu regime. So, I mean, some might say it's it's early. Some, I mean, this is a Tinubu who has Atiku Bagudu in his cabinet for crying out loud. So I'm not surprised. Of course, I have concerns. I mean, this is not somebody, uh, Gilbert Shaguri is not somebody who, who Nigerians should... Um, should not be you uh, wary of. I mean, we all know his ties to Abacha, but it seems like Tinubu likes Abacha boys. That um, and it gives you, it makes you wonder, you know, if there's more to this whole Tinubu story that we've been told. So, you know, Nigerians should watch this space and particularly be concerned when the inevitable asset sales start happening. <laughs> and you find out that Gibe Shaguri is a, has bought more of Nigeria or is a conduit for something like that. Oh. Well, thank you, Phoenix. We shall be keep, keeping a close eye. I'm sure with all the money you have, I'm sure you too, Phoenix, will buy some assets when the time comes, I presume. My friend, but, uh... my friend Michael. <laughs> in I, I, I don't I don't play in those leagues, I beg. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, well on to our final topic, which is Peter Obi. A few there seems to have been a delay in his response to the Supreme Court's ruling on the presidential elections. But I think about a week after or so, Peter Obi has finally issued his statement. So Phoenix, can you talk us through what the what the key issues he highlighted were in his press conference? It's interesting. I mean, I, I was I was looking forward to his his um his speech because I mean this is a, this is a man who's not used to losing elections, a man who's also gone who's benefited from uh, the judiciary um, uh, rulings uh, to rightfully claim uh, election that he had been rigged out of. So it was interesting. You, it was, I thought it would be interesting to see how he would respond. And the manner in which he responded, yeah, for me, confirmed what I expected to happen, which is that he is now Nigeria's de facto opposition leader. 
he is going to be that voice and he's and he's not going to shirk from that responsibility it seems like he's embraced it and we can see subsequently his commentary and one only hopes that he doesn't run out of steam and that he stays the course and can build on um on what what he achieved in the 2023 election cycle which was far beyond what a lot of people expected him to achieve um and you know he talked about and um, you know especially in a scenario where i mean the pdp clearly is no more there's no discernible leadership structure there's no there's no sensible policy trust so you're just like you know they are not there somebody has to fill that vacuum and he seems to be stepping up to the plate i mean he talked about you know what what a lot of a lot of us had said about the the court rulings both the uh the pept and the supreme court what was interesting for me was that he used public he mentioned public opinion he mentioned um national interests which were things I had always been saying con- continuously on the on the podcast that look this 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 election election cases, especially for the highest office in the land, cannot just be <clears throat> a dispute between two parties. It has to be looked at with national interest above all, and it has to be that the courts step in to ensure that beyond doubt, this is who Nigerians have chosen. The courts neglected to do that, and he called that out. He mentioned that that look that this was. This was a place where the Supreme Court particularly needed to step up and yet they abandoned their responsibility. Um, you know, he expresses disappointment, but as a Democrat, he, he accepts that this is the final bus stop. There's nothing else to do. But then embraced the role that he now needs to play as, as an opposition, opposition leader to keep the administration on his toes. And I would expect to prepare for the next election cycle and and build his coalition going forward. So for me it was it was it was worth the wait. I think he took his time to gather his thoughts, um, to reflect on on the outcome and then to come out in the right way, you know, speaking very clearly and then letting Nigerians know that look. This, this is not the end. Um, you need to continue fighting and pushing for the Nigeria that we need. Thank you, Phoenix. One of the strong lines in that speech from reading it is, he, he said this, he says, it is therefore with great dismay that I observe that the court's decision contradicts the overwhelming evidence of election rigging And he says the court abandoned its responsibility as a court of law and policy. And he seemed to be referring to the fact that they totally ignored issues of election rigging, the the alleged false claim of a technical glitch, the the substantial non-compliance with the rules set by INEC itself, matters of perjury, identity theft, and forgery. And he's saying the as a court of law and policy, the Supreme Court should have intellectually engaged these issues to try to reach a decision that would satisfy the the national conscience. But the, in his view, the court seemed to have ignored these things. Do, do you agree with that? And do you think the court truly did abandon its role as a court of law and policy? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I mean, we talked about this, and I, I, I fully endorse... And what he was saying, the court abandoned its its role entirely. The Supreme Court is not meant to. They acted as though they were just meant to rubber stamp what the Pept had done, and then, of course, as we've seen them do in recent time, just defaulted to technicalities. the The Supreme Court again. I keep reiterating this: the the, the role of the court, and and he said it as a court of law and policy. Your role is to interpret the constitution. They totally ignored the constitution. In fact, they did things that were antithetical to the constitution. You know, when we talk about 
when the issues of qualification, for example, and then uh, the issues of forgery, then you have to add the fact that they let INEC get away with with brigandage. That's the that's the bit word that comes to my mind. Because who is INEC to to decide how an election will be run after the fact? So the electoral act, yes, gives INEC the the, the right to 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 determine the procedure for running an election. But surely the court should have made a, a clear case that you only have that right up until the time that people begin to cast their votes. What the Supreme Court did, one of the key things they did was to, was to say to INEC that yes, you have the power, even after people have cast their votes, to change the process that you have defined and communicated and everybody has accepted that this is the way elections will be run. You, that for me is like turning order on its head and so the, the things that he was saying was you know you uh, you the supreme court abdicated your responsibility in fact not only abdicated, you behaved irresponsibly by allowing this kind of things that you know can only lead to anarchy if we have no rules if we have no clear guidance if we cannot trust the process by which we choose our leaders if this is being left in the hands of a few to do and undo, then we do not have a society that 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 is just and and equitable for everyone. And that's why you need a court. That's why you need the judiciary to restore order by ensuring that you know the constitution, the legal frameworks are protected. They're sacrosanct. That that good good, you know. So for me, I mean, everything he said, I fully agree. We saw it all play out. And and now we see, as we were speaking earlier, elections, the runoff, ele I mean, not runoff, but the off-cycle elections in Kogi, Imo, and Bayelsa, we see what is going on. If the Supreme Court had done the right thing by, by questioning the process. No one is saying that you had to declare Atiku or be the winner, but be seen to have gone through a process that leaves no doubt that justice was done. For example, challenge um, INEC and say to them, You're, you have to follow your process. Go and make sure you have loaded even six months after or even more you still have not fully loaded all of the results. You said there was a glitch on the day. You fixed that glitch, but and because you then did governorship elections after, right? And, and supposedly everything went well. So go and load all the valid election papers so that people can go on the internet and download and tabulate and confirm the results that you declared. Because some of the results that you already posted into the system are showing, and that was part of the petition, are showing that <laughs> you, it is clearly different from what you declared. So what stopped the Supreme Court from saying to INEC, we give you X number of days within this framework that we are giving that we must declare um, a winner of the petition, go and put those results together, make sure you provide to every party the, the copies that you have in your hand or whatever results that you based your declaration on, you know, provide them. That will be seen to be doing justice because you're not, you not bringing in anything extraneous. You're saying that based on the elections you ran, give us the evidence of what you declared. But they, they didn't do that. Instead, you know, they just rubber stamped what INEC did and went ahead with that. Thank you, Phoenix. No, I, because I, I do try to be as objective, especially when I'm on the podcast asking the questions. But I do agree on this point that I was a bit surprised by the Supreme Court's approach to dealing with the issues because you're a court of law and policy, as Peter B said, and you should want to know the answers to certain questions. You should be genuinely inquisitive as to try to understand who is this person, whose certificate is this, is this certificate forged? What was the procedure for the elections? Were they followed? 
And I think a number of even the European Union in 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 their report of the elections also highlighted the fact that there were a lot not significant shortfalls, and I'd have expected the judges to do more. But as 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 you know, the decision is final, so we'll have to see what what happens going forward. But I want to go to my next question or the next issue, which is Peter Obi said this. He said, however, this is only another beginning however this end is only another beginning in our quest for the vindication of the hope of the common man for a better country and he seems to be implying that himself and Dati and his movement are, are just starting and he said they're going to play the role of the opposition and the question Phoenix is do you think they're able they're capable of, of playing that role and do you think Nigerians will be motivated enough to to follow them i i think i mean i i that was one part of the speech that i truly welcomed because i've been saying to folks that nigerians have to leave their their nature behind and instead play the long game we're not used to doing that so you know we 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 like quick turnarounds we like quick wins and you know to see results quickly you know so but if you're if you're fighting this kind of a battle you need to play the long game to your question around can they be can he be an effective um uh, opposition leader can they build of course they can in the space of less than 12 months i mean they built a, a, a movement came together that got him 6 million votes and within a shout of, you know, the presidency. I mean, based on how we know the elections went, you know, clearly, I mean, there, there is enough to say that he actually won or came very close to winning. So for me, that creates a platform to jump off of. When you look at the results, using INX results, he he won the south so when you, when you split the country into you know the 19 states in the north the 17 states in the south he won this he he won the majority of the votes in the south across southwest south south southeast he also you know took abuja you know so there is enough in fact if you look at the number of states won um if I remember correctly, I think he he won eleven and Abuja. They, they, I mean, so he wasn't far, far away from the others that were declared uh, from Tinubu, who was declared a winner. So there's enough of a platform to jump off of, and you know, work towards the next electoral cycle. But it's going to require a lot of work because the areas where he could not make enough inroads in time. He needs to go and build those those um, coalition. He needs to find a way to ensure that he brings more people into the fold. But starting with what he already has, if he can retain that, if he can build on that, if he can keep those folks engaged and make sure they don't give up on the process, make sure that, you know, they are even more determined that, look, if we could do this in a short space of time, wonder guess what we'll be able to do in four years, then then we could be in, we could be truly in for something. It's not going to be easy because the guys that they are going up against, you know, we saw, we just saw what um, Obuz Odima has done in Imo State. That's what you get when somebody who's illegitimate gets into power. They're going to break the mold and make sure that they don't lose. And that you can, you can bet your ass that uh, Tinumbu will do all that it takes to remold this country in his image so that, you know, he can retain his hold on power, but not only that, to make sure that, you know, beyond him, just as he's done in Lagos State, he can capture the nation effectively. So if Nigerians truly want a country, they need to get together and, and make sure they don't give up on the on the process now. Now, Phoenix, I need to press you further on this, your final point, because a number of political actors in Nigeria, especially on the, in the social media space, have made the point that 
it is now clear to to them anyway that as long as the APC and Bolatinibu are in power, there is no way elections will ever be free and fair. They also allege that the judiciary has been coward. So they allege that we're now at, in the, at the point where there's no sort of advocacy on the part of any politician that things can change. So their view is Peter O'B and the Labour movement or any other movement, either PDP or whoever, will be wasting their time, even if they try advocacy, because these people have literally uh, are determined to remain in power. Is 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 that your view? Is that is that how you you see the situation? I think they're obviously determined to remain in power, but I don't think that they are not. They cannot be defeated. I think they can be defeated. I think again, I look to the twenty twenty three elections and say there were there were gaps. The Labour Party was not fully ready. They, it wasn't resourced enough. It wasn't, um, you know. It, it, I mean, for example, they had 134,000 um, polling agents for what was ostensibly, I think, 180,000. So they had a gap of almost like 50,000 polling. What do you expect was going to happen? Which which I, I believe is part of why they could not get enough of, you know, polling unit results to prove their case successfully. You need to close that gap. You need to make sure that you are everywhere and able to get your own hand on a on a, a copy, because now now you've seen what INE can can do, where they would you know give up their own process. I think there was too much faith in INE doing the right thing, and people relaxed and thought, oh, okay, Bivas is available, IREV is available. It will no, people will need to go forward believing that INE will not honor its own systems and therefore they need to be prepared to have you know more people out there you know fighting the cause you got six million votes <laughs> go out and leverage that even if it's just one million people who are who are fully signed up and ready to to work so for me at the end of the day it's the people that will vote at the end of the day, we saw a lot of people who were willing to defend their votes. You are not going to be able to, you know, cower everybody, kill everybody, do you know? So it it comes back to organization. It comes back to, you know, planning and structure over a period of time to make sure that you can you can get there. And again, I keep saying that the platform is there. The final point for me is also what role PDP decides to play. Does it splinter? And, you know, some part of it will join APC, some part will go off on its own, some part may join Labour Party. You know, how, that, because again, as much as we talk about APC, do not forget that Bolatinubo has come to power with 36% of the vote. So if the opposition can unite or, or some part of that opposition unites and, you know, more is done, they, they are defeatable. They know that. And of course, they will be fighting not to be, but they're not, they're not popular. And unless they turn around things so significantly and provide a better life for people, which they have not started well on, I don't see how they become, how Etinubu and APC government becomes popular enough that they will be safe, that people will actually come out to want to vote for them. And so that, that will become um an opportunity for for the opposition to come together and defeat them so i truly believe that they can be defeated but they need to but the opposition needs to do the work and then how, how would atiku and his movement fit into this arrangement phoenix atiku needs to make up for the mistake and the nonsense that he did he, he should have been a kingmaker and if he had done that the first time around, we would not have Itinubu in Asura. But his selfishness, you know, got the better of him. And I'm hoping that he's learned his lesson. But maybe he's not learned his lesson and he's going to try to come back again in 2027. That is his problem. 
as far as I'm concerned, he's 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 irrelevant and he's irrelevant to the extent of trying to become president. He will be relevant if he takes if he tries to you know bring his movement together with a credible opposition. And at this time, as far as I'm concerned, the only credible opposition we have is is Peter Obi, who on his own, you know, with his movement, with people supporting him, can have six million votes not relying on PDP structure or things like that. So if you want to back someone, that's the person to back. That's the person to make sure that your your structure supports so that you can, in your latter days, you know, retire as an elder statesman who actually helped to bring a turnaround to the country and removed this locus, these people who we know would only destroy this country further. So... That's this is a call to Atiku to to give up on his personal ambition and instead, you know, going back to the press conference that he go he gave to show us that he truly means well for Nigeria and throw his uh, his hat in the ring to help bring true change. Well, Phoenix, the what how PDP supporters will respond to that point by saying your point seems to be a contradiction because their view will be if you're saying the elections were rigged, then it wouldn't have mattered whether or not PDP had supported OB, the elections would have been rigged either way. And they would also say, secondly, the Labour Party is not a force, that they only have one governor and a few legislators, that the PDP is the dominant party in the states and legislature. So they would say they would disagree with your comments. So how, how would you respond to them? I'm happy for them to disagree. At the end, at the end of the day, we saw how they performed. They were supposed they chose a, a northerner, thinking that that was what would bring them to back to power. Guess what? They lost in the north. So perhaps they should look at themselves and their failure, and then understand that the guy who won the south. Perhaps that's the guy they should have backed. And if they had backed him with their with their structure and their votes and his movement, how how would it have been easy to rig out that? So, I mean, yes, of course, there was rigging done. But even with the rigging, we saw how close it was. And we saw that if you add up the PDP and, and Labour Party, it far exceeded what what um, APC got. So yes, let's even say you lose some of that because, you know, the coming together, some people might say, no, I'm not joining, I'm not a party of this coalition or some people might. But at the end of the day, if you, you, you we all knew that Bola Tinubu was very unpopular and that the APC was also very unpopular because of Buhari. So people wanted a credible alternative. You went, you as PDP went with an with a with a candidate that you thought was going to give you dominance in the north, and then you add your southern support. But then you your with your northern candidate, you lost to a southerner in the north. So you you are you are whether you have governors or not, we're talking about you know an election that we all just saw play out. And it was obvious that you guys did not, did, your strategy failed. So if someone is then telling you that, you know, change that strategy and then, you know, realign with somebody who has clearly shown you that he can walk out of your party and has the support of a movement that could push you close with all your structure. If, unless people are not thinking, I really don't know how else. We're not talking about states. We all know that if if a if for example if um the, the the presidency is like a rising tide that leaves all boats if 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 um Atiku or Obi had won we will be seeing different elections in different scenarios in the three elections that we're seeing today it's a different matter when you have, you know, a Hopus or Dima can only huff and puff because he knows that, yes, the guy centrally who controls the police and the army and everything has his back. 
But if if it had been a, a Peter Obi that was in Asurok, you would see a very different state of elections in any of those countries, in any of those states, sorry. INEC will behave differently. The, the police will behave differently. The coalition centers, you know, so again, whether you have governors or not is, is of no consequence. We just saw somebody, you know, without governors go and get 6 million votes. So people need to stop thinking in the way they've been thinking in the past that has led them to failure after failure after failure and will continue to lead them to future failure and re rethink about, okay, how do we really come together? Because guess what? The youngsters who, you know, filed behind Peter we will only get more. More young people will become, uh, you know, will become able to vote. They'll become eligible to vote. They will join, they will, they will most likely join their fellow young people, you know, who are only a few years ahead of them and, and join that kind of a movement. So the, 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 for me as far, and with all of the issues in the PDP right now, they, they, they've lost all relevance as far as I'm concerned, especially at the, on the national scale. So they might continue, and we all know they say politics is local, they might continue to grab here and there, you know, seats, you know, states, you know, in places where they're entrenched. But, you know, this is, uh, they, they really need to rethink. And they're not in a place to say Labour Party is not a force or something is not a force. That's already been disproven in the elections that just passed. Well, thank you, Phoenix. Hopefully, very soon we'll get Ilemona or somebody from the PDP to come and respond and provide their version of or their, their response to your views because I'm sure they would argue that no, the PDP is still the the opposition. But our time is up. So first of all, thank you for co-hosting. Then secondly, I must thank our listeners for always being loyal and giving us helpful feedback. But until same time next week. I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thanks, Michael. And thank you, listeners. Have a great week ahead.